Malachi chapter 3, 6, 18. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in the house, in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not enough room to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and vines in your fields will not drop before the fruit is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. You ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile, futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out its requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possessions. I will spare them, just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. This is our sixth lesson in a series of conversations we've called Not How We Imagine. We've worked our way through the Old Testament book of Malachi, and we'll finish up next week. And we focus most of our attention on disappointment, deep, unchecked disappointment, because that's what dominated the attitudes of the 5th century B.C. Jews living in and around Jerusalem. That's the backdrop for Malachi's prophecy. And unfortunately, we've seen ourselves at times in their attitudes. They disputed with God. They challenged his character and God responded. And through his responses, I felt encouragement and I felt his rebuke. I pray you have as well. And today is no exception. In the passage that was read for us, uh, well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it, it speaks to one of our favorite topics, money. Uh, so to help us get at God's message today. First of all, we need to lay out a critical theological principle. This is the don't miss this notion of the day. It lays as a foundation underneath this teaching. We can't really get the meaning of this passage unless we understand this principle. And then let's walk through the passage itself. Once again, we'll see their complaints and we'll see God's response. And finally, let's see how all of it might apply to our lives. That part will be quick, but pretty blunt. Okay, so here's the theological principle. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. We do not have a commercial relationship with God. We have a love relationship with God, right? We have a commercial relationship with Amazon. We give them money, they send us stuff. Some of your children have a commercial relationship with one another over their Halloween candy. I'll give you all the almond joys if you give me your Reese's cups. 
but we don't have a commercial relationship with God. It's not an exchange of one thing for another. We have a love relationship with God. Now, certainly, the ancient world conceived of their relationship with God often as a commercial relationship. I must sacrifice something, they believed, if I want to earn God's favor. If I want him to bless me, I have to give something up. But that's not how the universe works. Remember the classic Christian anthem written by the Apostle John? It appears on a poster somewhere at almost every NFL game. For God so loved the world that he gave his unique son so that anyone who believes in him might have eternal life. We have a love relationship with God. At least that's what he desires. Now, the Bible does tell us that our good deeds will be recognized and in some sense rewarded in eternity. For example, the Apostle Paul told us, uh, work at whatever we do with all of our heart as if we're working for the Lord, not for other people, because we know that we will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. But the same Paul is also adamant that we don't earn what we receive from God. His word is grace. It comes to us by grace, Paul taught us. We don't pay and then acquire the results. We don't work and then earn the results. Our relationship with God is not commercial. It's a love relationship. That's, of course, why Jesus told us that the whole Old Testament could be summarized in the command to love God with all our heart, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. By his design and by his desire, we have a love relationship with God. This means that God doesn't reward our faith. Let me repeat that. God doesn't reward our faith. That's not the right way to think about it. Let me give us a better way to think about it. Our faith is like a mechanism that enables us to receive from God what he has for us. It's not something we do for God that he then rewards with good things for us. You know, when I turn on my television in my home, the programming that I get doesn't come to me as a reward for having a TV. The television is simply a mechanism that enables me to access the programming that's being broadcast by various channels. Jesus once healed a woman who'd been bleeding for years. She was actually in a crowd of people. She just touched him and she was healed. When Jesus identified her, he said, your faith has healed you. He didn't mean that her faith had earned the exercise of God's power toward her. And he didn't mean that she exhibited faith. So Jesus rewarded her with a healing. He meant that her faith had accessed the power that God wanted to display in her. Her faith allowed her to receive the blessing that God wanted to give her. I can't help think, but think of Isaiah's words in Isaiah 30. He, he, he was actually in the middle of rebuking the Israelites for their unfaithfulness and talking about how God was going to allow them to be chastised. Anyway, then he said, look, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. That's God des God's desire to bless us, to be gracious to us. Our faith is just the mechanism that accesses that blessing. Let me give you an even better way of looking at it. Uh, think of a perfectly healthy earthly father. Now, not many of us measure up to quite that standard, but you can imagine it. Now, that father would want to do everything he could for his children. He'd want to help them when they got in trouble. He'd want to give advice to them when they needed it. He'd especially want to share his resources. And when he died, he'd want to bless his children with everything that had come to him in life. They wouldn't have to earn it. Uh, he'd, he'd want to give it just because of how much he loved them. And if they maintained a close relationship with him over the years, well, he could give them so much more. He would know more about what they needed, what was going on in their life, what they were going through, so he could better meet their needs. Well, God is a 
perfectly healthy, heavenly Father. We don't earn His blessing. He longs to give it. Our faith is the mechanism which accesses the relationship and the blessing. It's not an activity that God rewards. And this is the toxin. I think more than anything else, this idea is the pollutant that spoiled the faithfulness of these 5th century B.C. Jews. They thought of their relationship with God as commercial. You hear it plainly in, in verse 14 of this passage, don't you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? What did we gain? Hear that? In other words, we were supposed to gain something through all this religious stuff that we did. We scratch your back, you scratch ours. We believe in you. Our lives turn out exactly as we want, exactly how we expect them to turn out. This is the math that we talked about last week. If you listened to the message last week, you may remember our equation. I am nice plus, I believe in God plus, I go to church sometimes plus, most people are much worse than I am equals, things should go well for me. My life should happen just like I expect it to. Isn't, isn't that what God promised? That things would always go well for me if I did my part? Isn't that the point of religion? It turns out that this commercial perspective might not be just an ancient problem. It might be a suburban American problem as well. All right, let's go to the passage and see how we got here. The passage from last week, if you were with us, you'll remember it ended by talking about how God is going to judge. It gives this list, sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, uh, those who defraud laborers of their wages, those who oppress widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice, but do not fear me. Okay, then at the beginning of our passage in verses 6 and 7, he's going to tell them why they're different from that list. He says, the, the Lord reminds them this, uh, I, the Lord, do not change, so you are not destroyed. He goes on, look, since the time of your forefathers, you've been consistently unfaithful. You should be destroyed. I, I should abandon you. If, if this was a commercial relationship, I would, but I don't because I don't change. So let's rebuild this relationship. That's the point. That's my aim. Return to me, he says, and I'll return to, to you. We'll be in sync again, says the Lord Almighty. Well, the point here, and always in God's mind, is that he wants a love relationship with us. And that's true even in the Old Testament. God reminded them through the prophet Jeremiah, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Look, if you're newer to Christian faith, this, this may not be exactly how you thought about it, but it's con the consistent testimony of the Bible and of those who have really known God. It's the truth. It's not about being good. It's not about being religious. God wants a love relationship with us. Let's keep going. At the end of verse 7, uh, they respond, you know, you, you, you talk about returning to you. So how are we supposed to do that? Pause here. Let's remind ourselves, these folks have been suffering under sustained, unchecked disappointment. They have allowed that disappointment to dominate their field of vision. And that disappointment has soured their relationship with God, mostly because of, of this commercial viewpoint. And they are very frustrated with God and they have doubted his character much less his concern for them. So how are we supposed to come back to you, God? How are we supposed to return? What, what do you mean? And his answer is surprising, isn't it? 
Will a person rob God? Yet you robbed me. Wait, who said anything about robbing? Uh, How do we rob you? You have withheld your tithes and offerings. (laughs) Wait, stop the presses. Ed, this is starting to sound like God wants something here. It's sounding like he's accusing them of not holding up their end of the bargain. It's starting to sound a little commercial. Okay, so let's make it even worse before we make it better. (laughs) Let's read verses 9 through 12 again. I want you to get the full sense of this passage. Verse 9. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. All right, the reason I started this morning laying out the critically important theological principles is because this is perhaps the most commercial sounding passage in the Bible, and yet it's not really. So there are a couple of things to know about this before you accuse God of commercialism here. First, we should know the logistics. A tithe, he talks about bringing your tithe into the storehouse. A tithe is a tenth. That's literally what the word meant. 10% of their income was the prescribed donation which faithful Jews were instructed to give to the temple, or as he says here, my house. The priests and Levites were sustained by these gifts, and the poor were taken care of out of these gifts. So these gifts were like a lubricant that helped the wheels of Israelite society turn. They helped maintain their religious life, and they acted as a safety net for the most vulnerable. The second thing we should know is what the owner's manual says. When we read a passage like this, we should remember the owner's manual. What do I mean by that? Well, for example, Leviticus 25, 23 says, The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine, and you are but aliens and my tenants. Psalm 24, 1 goes even further. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And these these aren't just isolated verses. This is a a very consistent theme in the Bible. It turns out when faithful Jews gave 10% to the temple, they were just giving 10% of what had been given to them. Way back at the beginning of their history, Moses had warned them about this. At that point, they were on the cusp of entering and eventually conquering the land. And Moses gave them this warning in Deuteronomy. He says, You may say to yourselves, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember, the Lord your God, for it's he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. Now, for those of you who've been able to keep up with our uh, companion devotional guide, uh, you know we finished this week. Congratulations. If you've not finished, please keep plugging away. I have prayed this will be a benefit to us, and I believe it will. Anyway, on day 17 of our guide, we dealt with this passage, the one we're talking about today, and we talked about about why this is so epic in God's mind. And I want to read you a part of that uh, devotional right now, if I can, um, that that explains this, this idea. 
We said uh, the Old Testament refers to the land over a thousand times. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, I'm sure this rings true for you. And the vast majority of these references are to the land of Canaan, the land that God promised to the fathers, the land he gave Israel, the land where he would bless his people. How Israel regarded and treated the land and its produce was a central feature of their responsibilities under God's covenant. We go on. Their residency in the land came to represent their participation in a love relationship with God, with the God who had given the land. But that residency had to be legitimized by an attitude of faith and gratitude toward God, that residency. And that faith and gratitude was shown by their proper use of and by their view of the land. In other words, they needed to understand that they were stewards of their resources, but God was the original owner, author, originator. One of the primary ways they demonstrated their stewardship of the land was through the system of tithes. The giving of tithes and offerings was how they cared for the priests and Levites. It was how they cared for the poor. It's a central part of their worship activity. To withhold the tithe was tantamount to saying, these resources are mine to do with as I please. It is the same for us today. Can you see what God is getting at here? He doesn't need their tithe. He doesn't need their end of the bargain. He's not going to eat their bull or sheep. He doesn't need their gold or silver. They needed to give it. They needed to recognize who they were and who he is. They needed to understand their place and to rightly orient themselves in the world. They needed to think about something beyond themselves. This is why he introduces the charge against their stinginess by saying, return to me. He doesn't say, start doing right, start being faithful again. No, this is about relationship, not behavior. And when the right perspective is achieved, when the relationship is righted, when they have access to the loving Father, then His blessings can flow. The floodgates of heaven can be opened and they can receive. I think it's interesting how Malachi wraps up this whole section of the prophecy that we, we read uh, look at verse 16. He says, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. It's like he wants the complainers, the ones who've surrendered to their disappointment. He wants them to know that there are still faithful people. Not everybody has caved to discouragement. And the Lord is listening to the faithful people as well. And he likes what he hears. In fact, in keeping with the theme of judgment that Malachi has already introduced a couple of times, he reminds his listeners that a time is coming when, according to verse 18, you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who have served God and those who do not. So evidently, if we're trying to console ourselves by thinking, well, everybody in my circumstances would feel this way, evidently that's not so. And eventually, distinctions will be made. And we want to be on the right side of that dividing point. Okay, so what does this have to do with us? Well, it might be obvious, but let me be blunt about it. Whenever we feel disconnected, either because we've allowed disappointment to settle into our bones or for whatever reason, one of the principal strategies for getting ourselves back on course in our relationship with God is giving. We need to be generous. We need to give to God's causes. We need this. 
It's for our benefit. That means for those of us who are connected at Gateway, we need to be giving to Gateway. I know that sounds self-serving, but I promise you it's not. Or or if it is self-serving on my part, then try to ignore me and just listen to God here. If we're not giving, we will feel inevitably adrift toward the feeling that that townhome in South Riding or that single family in Willisford or that new SUV is ours. We did that. That's what we'll think. We worked hard. We saved. We bought that home in Brambleton. We did this by the strength of our hands. And this is a deadly thought process for our emotional and spiritual health. We, we'll, we'll disconnect. We'll increasingly look to our circumstances to satisfy us and we'll end up robbing God. Our faith will drift and we will loosen our grip on the mechanism that allows us to receive God's blessing. We'll miss it. Actually, God is more blunt than I've just been. This is the only time in Scripture that we are told to literally test God on anything. And here he tells us to test him. Give, he says, and watch what happens. Okay, please, please, please don't turn this into a commercial exchange. Well, let's see then. If I give God 10%, maybe he'll multiply that and giving me more stuff back to me, 15 or 20%. That's not what he means. Remember, he wants a love relationship with us. And when we give with glad and sincere hearts as our recognition and agreement with how the universe works, When we give like that, well, we access the floodgates of heaven and God's blessings flow. Now, if we're honest, some of us are thinking, look, I don't want this religious stuff. If I'm going to test God in this, I don't want to end up being more religious and being 10% poorer. And the only honest answer to myself when I end up thinking like that is that that kind of thinking ends up here. It ends up discouraged, disappointed, unconnected, a little aimless and lost. We give and God blesses in exactly the way and to exactly the degree that that most deeply satisfies us. Now, for many people, God has responded to giving by blessing them financially. I heard a testimony about that this week. For some of us, God blesses in other ways. I heard a testimony years ago from a friend who felt like Their family was restored once they learned this lesson. And by the way, if you're part of Gateway, the key for you and me is not to give to Gateway. The key is to give and to give to God's causes. I honestly said give to Gateway a minute ago because I was trying to be especially blunt. But if if we're all giving as God directs, Gateway will be fine. We also need to be giving to our friends in need. To our, to our family and the generosity needs to pour out of us. We need to be giving to causes that God percolates in our hearts. We need to bring our whole tithe into the storehouse. One final and very practical comment about us to walk away today. You know, the, the New Testament doesn't mention a tithe. In fact, the Apostle Paul gives us a different kind of standard. He says this, remember this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9. In other words, we should give as God directs us to give. Now, Diane and I have found the principle of 10%, literally 10%, to be a very helpful guide for us. 
But the key in this process is our recognition of how the universe works. God is the owner, author, originator. When we learn to really live within that context, then we'll give as God directs. We'll wonder, not how much do I have to give to do my religious duty, but we'll wonder how much do I need to live on so that I can give away huge amounts. We don't have a commercial relationship with God. We have a love relationship. That love, by the way, finds its highest and clearest expression in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. I really hope you know him. Because I've found that living out the kind of freedom, and it is a freedom, living out the kind of freedom that this teaching creates isn't possible without a relationship with Jesus. So let me uh, close this in prayer. Father, this is a, uh, a new lesson or a reminder. It's a teaching that steps on my toes and perhaps for many of us. We just spend far too much of our energy, our, our time, our thinking, our planning on how to collect and you have designed us to be givers, to be, to be the, the, for, for rivers of blessing to flow through us, to come to us and then to pass out to others. And when we begin to lose faith perspective, we, we dam up that flow and the, the blessing has nowhere to go. Father, for some of us today, is, is, it's just a time of repentance. It's a time where we need to turn away from our drift in the wrong direction. In the way we look at God, in the way we look at our resources, in the way we look at the things around us, the stuff in our lives. Forgive us. Redirect us. Forgive us, Lord, for our commercialism. We live in a culture that is just, uh, it's, it's a soup that is sick with commercialism. Help us to resist that tendency in ourselves to stand against it. Uh, Father, make us generous people. Allow faith to well up within us so that we can give and give and enable us, Lord, to just receive your blessing as the floodgates of heaven open up to us. We want to be in the faithful company that is whispering and talking and praying and that you're hearing and noticing. Uh, the ones who are your as Malachi says here, your treasured possession. You know, when the distinctions are made, Lord, we want to be on the right side of that ledger. Help us. We need your help. Jesus, most importantly, I pray that you would be uh, elevated and bragged about in each of our hearts. Um, that we would give with an eye toward what you've given us. Your life. We're so thankful. 
bless us and um, you know, help us all as individuals and families, Father, as we approach the, uh, the holiday season, that you would multiply the generosity in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.